Hello out there, it is I, your humble host, Isabella L. Price, coming to you live out of Seattle, Washington. I wanted to talk to you about tonight's episode. I have a special guest. I interviewed Joe Wass from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, an author, a a Guinness Book World Record holder, and um, a cartoonist, um, and also a maze artist. We talk about art, and we talk about paranormal experiences, and it's it's a really great uh, episode for you guys. Now, we recorded this over the phone, so there's a little bit of like a phone staticky kind of a kind of a delay. Um, but I think what I'll do is I'll transcribe the episode so that anybody who has problems hearing or has troubles hearing the uh, audio portion, you can just read along as well. So I'm super excited for you guys to be able to get this episode. I'm so sorry about the delay for the episodes that they've been coming out kind of late, um, but I am getting back on track with those so you guys can just hold on and wait for new episodes coming up. All right, you guys, remember to subscribe and also don't forget, stay creepy. Bye. that yes i did awesome okay everything should be set up this should work take two this is going to work out (laughs) universe oh my god thank you so much for your time joe i really appreciate you oh it's my pleasure um okay so uh full disclosure uh we've tried to do this once before and uh the technology well, I I don't know if I want to say the technology failed me or I failed the technology, um, but uh, the I, I think origin- I think we should start spreading a conspiracy theory that uh, there were other forces that disrupted it. So something yes. happened. <laughs> we got a little bit too close to the truth, I think, and so <laughs> that was it. <laughs> but this time it should work. Um, so I'm I'm really excited. Um, so for, uh, for the listeners though, um, can you give a little bit of an introduction about who you are, Joe? Sure. Uh, my name is Joe Wos. I am a cartoonist and master maze artist. Um, I have a nationally syndicated feature called Maze Tunes, uh, distributed through Creator Syndicate, appears in newspapers all over the country, and they are cartoon illustrated mazes. So the illustrations are integrated within the maze themselves. Um, we also have several books through uh, Barron's Educational Publishing, and uh, I toured nationwide, uh, performing as a cartoonist and storyteller. I draw stories as I tell them. I also perform with uh, symphony orchestras, uh, performing uh, alongside the music, and um, also do cartooning workshops. So I, I do a little bit of everything. That's awesome. I mean, that's the idea that you can call yourself a master maze artist i think is the coolest thing anybody's ever imagined ever so it's uh, i have some pretty unique um credits on my business cards one of one of my favorites is i I'm, I'm also the um <laughs> character brand integrity consultant for starkist and um what that job entails is whenever they're doing a new commercial with charlie the tuna or a new website um They'll have me review it, and, and I say things like, well, that's not what a talking tuna fish would say. So that's one of those sort of fun credits I have. 
That is amazing. That is, that is the best thing I've ever – of course there would be somebody that would try to keep that consistent, but I've never thought, like, that that was, like, a real job. That's – Joe, you're, like, living the dream. That's so incredible. <laughs> Thank you. So you uh, recently released um, a couple of books of mazes, um, uh, and I got them – Recently, where did I put them? But but you just released, was it just two books? Yeah, I, I did two books um, in 2017. Uh, the first one was Amazing Animals, um, and that one launched at the National Book Festival in Washington, D.C., and it was 50 uh, mazes featuring uh, animals. So um, I think in all told, there's 50 mazes. There's over 150 different animals in different environments. And, um, you know, I tried to be, you know, it's cartoons, but I tried to be very true to the animals. Um, they're not wearing tuxedos or hats or anything like that, as much as I love drawing funny animals. And you won't see polar bears hanging out with penguins. I, I tried to, to keep them in the, the proper um, uh, habitat. And then the second book, um, which I think your listeners would be most list- interested in, was um, Myths and Monsters, 50 Mazes for Kids which featured mazes of monsters, mythology, cryptozoology from all around the world. Yeah, this one is absolutely my favorite book. Like, the idea of, I mean, anything that has something to do with monsters that's targeted towards kids, I think, is really good. Uh, One is because I think that kids genuinely do like monsters um, and uh, that a lot of parents kind of are... I guess intimidated by their kids' love of monsters, but this book is is a perfect kind of a of a bridge between kids who love monsters, but then it's also like intellectually challenging. Uh, I was telling you earlier that I even I was going through this maze book and I was even stuck on a lot of stuff. So um, yeah, I think that this is a really I mean I don't want to say cute, but it's a really cute book. Um, it, it is, and, 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 you know, within sort of my own personal mission has always been this idea that, that we shouldn't talk down to kids. Um, you know, one of my frustrations as a child solving mazes was I, I just hated placemat mazes and, and mazes on a, a backs of, black backs of cereal boxes because they were always too simple. They just weren't challenging. And kids want to be challenged. Um, they, they love it. Uh, if something's too easy, you know, uh, they just don't want to do it. It's not rewarding for them at all. Um, so I try and make my mazes progressively more challenging. You know, they start out easy at the beginning with a level one maze and all the way up to level five. And, and by the time you're a level five maze, those are challenging not just to kids. Those are, you know, even level two mazes are challenging to an adult. Um, I don't dumb anything down. It's, it's, uh, I know kids are very capable and, um, you just got to give them a chance. Yeah, I love, I think one of my favorite things about this is that you have so many different kinds of monsters from all over the world. So you've got like, you've got like the Leviathan from Hebrew literature, you've got uh, Egyptian uh, monsters, you've got uh, Japanese monsters, the Kappas in here, 
the Jersey Devils in here. Um, I, I absolutely love the fact that you pulled monsters that were um, so international because it feels like no matter what your background is, you'll be able to find a monster that you that you recognize. Um, and I was wondering, what, how did you do your research for this? It, w- it was pretty intensely researched. I, I, I do have a background where uh, I'm a storyteller as well. I draw stories as I tell them. So I, I'm familiar with a lot of folklore and uh, mythology. Um, and so when I did this book, I, I really wanted to, you know, reach beyond the obvious. I, I wanted to get beyond just Dracula and Frankenstein and the mummy and, and those movie monsters. They're included. But I wanted to show that monsters, that term, encompasses such a broad array of fascinating characters, literature, and cultures. Um, you mentioned the, the Japanese kappa. I, I specifically set out I wanted to make sure um, I had representation from around the world. And um, that was just such a fun character to draw. And it's, it's, it's very detailed maze. And um, the, the character of the kappa is such a, a wonderful fun character uh, in folklore. And, and my hope is that kids will see characters like that, or even Leviathan, as you mentioned, or the Jersey Devil, and they'll go, wow, what a cool character. I, I wonder what the story is behind the character. And, and they'll do some research on their own. You know, I my book should be a jumping-off point. Um, you know, solve the mazes, see the characters, you know, read who these characters are, and then go out and research more and, and develop real love and passion for all these wonderful characters. Yeah, I think that's really great. Um, so I'm wondering, do you have a favorite monster of your own? My my favorite monster is actually not in the book. And it was so funny because cause I, I did the whole book, and then I couldn't believe I didn't include this monster because... It's a folk tale that I'm one of the few people who still tells that's from Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, and it's a folk tale from Western Pennsylvania about a creature called the Squonk, which is the world's ugliest creature, or as I describe it, the ugliest thing you ever will see if you ever do see what you never will see. Um, because the Squonk is so ugly, it does two things all the time. It, it hides because it's shamed how it looks, and it cries out of self-pity. And what I love about the creature in the way I tell the story is that because no one's ever seen it, nobody knows what it looks like. So I always have the audience help me decide what it'll look like. You know, and I'll ask the kids and grown-ups too, like, uh, does it have a long nose or a short nose? Um, name an animal with a funny nose, and we'll combine those. And, you know, does it have antlers or horns or floppy ears? And so it's it's a lot of fun to show that creative process. It's teaching them a folk tale that's that's from their culture here in Pennsylvania. Um, and, and it's a it's a fun a fun story and a fun character. And I couldn't believe I didn't include it in the book. <laughs> I've never heard of the squonk before, which is like it's I mean, I love cryptids, um and I've I've tried to I, I guess I, I call myself like a collector of cryptids. I just try to find out about them all over the country, but I've never heard of of the squonk before. Do you do you know like what's the background of that of that cryptid? Yeah, it, it is. It's a folk tale that was told, um, um, you know, in Pennsylvania, going back to uh, really, I, I think the, the 1700s and 1800s. Um, 
you know, it was it was one of those stories that was told by hunters a lot. Um, it was sort of carried down, and then it sort of vanished. But strangely enough, um, the squonk is captured. There are some folklore books that recapture the story. And then the squonk is also referenced in an album um, by Genesis. And their album, A Trick of the Tale, they do a song about the squonk. Wait, the band Genesis? The band Genesis, which makes no sense. Um, okay. But it, it, it is, it's, it's a variation of the story of the squonk, where, where a hunter tries to catch the squonk um, in a sack, and then when by the time they get, ha- get home, the sack is left with nothing but, but a bubble of tears, and, and that's all that's left. The squonk just sort of vanishes. Um, huh. They don't tell the whole story, but... It's a bizarre connection because it's this, this old folk tale that's told throughout Pennsylvania and, and this album by Genesis. So, so my suspicion is the story is probably has some early British origins, and then by the time it got to Pennsylvania, it sort of twisted and turned and and took on a new life. Because it reminds me a little bit of like the Jabberwocky, um, that the the Jabberwocky in Alice in Wonderland is kind of um, whatever you imagine a Jabberwocky to be is what a Jabberwocky is. Like, its its form is shaped entirely on your own imagination, and so there's yeah. no description of the of what the Jabberwocky it, is. Which, which is a brilliant tool that a writer or, or artist can have because what it does is it makes it impossible to look away. Because right. no one knows what it looks like, but you could be the first to catch a glimpse, and you'll know. Right. And then yeah. it's built out of your own imagination, and so you're you're part of that creative process. So I think that's that's a very compelling uh, to children and adults that idea of being a part of that process of you you are your own Dr. Frankenstein. You get to create your own monster. Yeah, that's really awesome. Because um, I mean. There's some kind of like Bigfoot legends out of Pennsylvania. There's some kind of um, kind of like like a swamp ape kind of skunk ape kind of legends um, and different things like that. Um, but I, I really I haven't because I used to live in Pittsburgh. That's actually how we met, and yeah. um, uh, and I really haven't looked into a lot of cryptids. I feel like walking around Pittsburgh, I see cryptids all the time sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the elusive yinzer, I guess, would be there. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that's really fascinating, this idea of, of uh, taking um, folklore, living folklore, and, and still making it very, very modern. I think that's a really interesting you should you should think about about uh, writing more stuff about the squonk. I'm, I'm fascinated. About the- I, you know, it's funny. It was one of the great things about this this book when I did the, you know this, these mazes. I included trolls and I included you know fairies and little warm fuzzies and you know the, um, the Jersey Devil and the Mothman from West Virginia. So I included ones that are both modern and I included ones from literature. I, I included um, Cthulhu and I included Frankenstein and so I really mixed it up a lot. And it was amazing to me just so as as I was drawing it, I was sort of like in some cases, coming up with stories in my head that I would tell about these characters. And I, I had this wonderful idea of of trolls um, 
living under all the bridges of Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh yes. is known as a city of bridges. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if every night these, these trolls, you know, are kept up all night by people driving across the bridge. And so they go out into the streets and they take their clubs and they create potholes to stop all the cars. And if you've ever been in Pittsburgh, you'll know that to be true. And then, and then the trolls would hide in the tunnels and scare the drivers driving through so they would all slow down out of the fear of the tunnels, which is another fun thing in Pittsburgh. So, so our, all our wonderful folklore we have and all these stories, are, 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 there's opportunities to give them a modern twist. And I would, I would love yeah. to see kids really do that on their own. I mean, it's, it's, it's so much fun. Folklore doesn't, it didn't end a hundred years ago. It continues. That's such a good idea. That is that is a, a perfect incorporation of of real life Pittsburgh life and mythology. That's that's such a good idea. And Pittsburgh, um, it, it has such an interesting like it's such an interesting city because it's so old and it has so much history to it. Um, I'm I'm currently living in Seattle, which is a really young city comparatively to Pittsburgh, and. Uh, there's not, I mean, when I was living in, in Pittsburgh, everywhere you went had some sort of like haunted history or paranormal history or, you know, there were so many graveyards and um, old buildings and it was such a, such a, a, a weird, this, Pittsburgh had like, um, it was sort of like liminal space, like it felt like it was otherworldly a lot of the time. Um, and uh, it just, it had something that was very paranormal about it. Yeah, Pittsburgh um, had had uh, characters. Um, people had, uh, there were, there were you know, one of my favorite characters is there was this guy, there was a real guy named the Double Cross Cough Drop Man. And I found out about him, this was in the 1800s, late 1800s, he would stand on a street corner selling cough drops. And he was this imposing presence. If you saw his ad, he... He wore a big buffalo skin coat, and he had a wooden leg and a silk top hat. And as I started going through old newspaper articles to find out his story, I found out the buffalo skin coat he got from Buffalo Bill. He, they had they had uh, fought together. He had been a member of the Pony Express. He lost his leg when he worked on the railroad. Um, you know, he got he got run over by a train and lost his leg. Places with leg, and he had laid this. He, he, he ran riverboat ferries um, long before there were such things. He was a circus performer. He was a tightrope walker. Um, he performed um, in the first touring company of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, oh so he, th- this guy, who was just this guy in a corner, had this amazing history. And then the most fascinating thing I found out, an obscure article from the 1900s, this is probably 1920 or so, that he used to sell these little flag pins. You know the flag pins every politician wears? Yeah. Well, according to ev- everything I could find, said that um, that these flag pins were invented in the 1970s <laughs> at the earliest. Well, here was proof that he invented it, and that the proof I finally found was he had given some to, I don't want to get the name up, but it was I believe it was Calvin Coolidge, or it might have been Herbert Hoover, i got to check yeah, exactly, but he had given one to one of the earlier presidents in the 1920s, had given him a uh, box of them. And it was said that he wore one on his inauguration. And I went through all these photos, and sure enough, I found a photo of the president wearing one of his flag lapel pins on his inauguration. 
And it was proof that this story, this bizarre Pittsburgh character, had this lasting contribution that nobody knew about. And I love I love those stories because that is that's a character whose ghost lives on. You know, that's a character that I always I consider ghosts to be character characters, people at a pivotal moment of time in their life that the record button gets hit. And then from that point on, once they've passed away, it gets stuck in an infinite play loop. And I think that's sort of with characters like that. There was a moment in time, something happens that's so important in history, and then it gets stuck in that infinite play. And when you find their stories, you know, you're, you're sort of helping resolve all those issues. You're, you're helping resolve that moment or, or celebrating that moment or, you know, helping resolve a tragedy. But, you know, I think that's the key, though, is you need those characters, those interesting people who live fascinating lives or something fascinating happened to them. And that's what Pittsburgh has because it has such an old history. It has all these fascinating characters. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the wildest story I think I've ever heard in my entire life. Like, that, that is <laughs> – it's fascinating, and it feels like it's, like, lost lore. Like, it feels like hardly anybody really knows that kind of stuff, even though it, that it would be... absolutely was. It was absolutely lost lore, obscure character, the few people... This guy was an icon and completely gone to history. And then I found out, it turned out, there was a painting of him that was hanging in the Carnegie Museum, and no one knew who it was, and that's who it was. I don't know what happened to the painting. It, it may still be there. I, I've been trying to track it down, but... You know, we lose our history. We 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 don't know. We need to celebrate it. When we we celebrate our history, we we bring those characters back to life. Right. Oh, that's so cool. Um. So speaking of of um uh, paranormal experiences, though, uh, I I know that you have had some experiences with the paranormal, and I was wondering if if you would be comfortable with sharing them. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to. Um. I have had in my lifetime uh three uh we'll call UFO sightings. Um specifically there were uh red balls of light. Um the first sighting I was probably about somewhere between seven and ten years old, I was very young, and um I was looking out um the window uh on the second floor of my house, um which overlooked sort of a forest area. Um and this ball of light came towards me. Um, about 100 feet away, stayed for just a few seconds, and then darted off very quickly. I had the same exact thing happen again when I was in, I'm, I'm guessing, my early 30s or late 20s. I was sitting on a porch with my best friend at the time, Steph. Uh, me and Stephanie were sitting on a porch, and the same thing happened. Ball light comes towards us, hovers about 100 feet away or so, and then just darts off. The third time it happened, um, I was with my daughter, uh, Lida, in San Francisco. And we're driving along, and we see this red ball light. It's it's a good distance, though, from us. It's more than 100 feet than the earth are. But it's moving in a very odd pattern. And we're watching it, and we're following it. And then at some point, it just does the same thing. It darts off. And... um so, I, so I've had it happen three times, and um, my my dad had a wonderful. He was a very creative guy. He, he had a wonderful theory. He always said that um, that um, UFOs were very often either time travelers, 
such as your, um, for example, he always said, it's probably you, um, 50 years from now coming back to visit just to, just to share those memories. Or, or he felt that it, maybe it was, um, um, interdimensional beings that were essentially us, but from another dimension. Just, just curiosity seekers. That's why they just could come, take a quick look, and then dart off real quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting more and more into the interdimensional idea. Um, cause I was just reading this, um, this article about how, um, the reason why people see, um, like lights in the sky, um, they see ghosts and they see, um, sometimes like Bigfoot sightings all happen around the same time, um, is because it's, it's an interdimensional portal that's been opened and it's allowing these sort of things to come through. Um, and it's affecting people who are sensitive to it. Um, do you have any sort of thoughts about why these things are happening around you? Yeah, I, I mean, I do believe um, artists are just more open to, to the concept. Salvador Dali had this great quote where he said, so little of what could happen does. And I believe, sort of the opposite, I believe everything that could happen does. Um, we just don't see it. Um, you know, every option, every decision we make um, creates a new a new dimension. You know, uh, a simple yes or no question, had you said no, had you said yes, ends up differently. Well, both happen, and both options move forward in a different direction, creating a new infinite, you know, these infinite universes sort of spider out. And, and I do believe the reason... When you see one thing that you're more likely to see more is your, your mind sort of opens up to it. Um, if you're able to see that UFO, well, then your mind is that more, much more open to other sort of interdimensional beings, such as Bigfoots or, or you know, um, ghosts or, or other such things. You know, I, 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 as I said with ghosts, I, I believe they're just simply, you know, caught in sort of this dimensional time loop um, that's caught on play. Um, so I so I think you're just you're you're seeing that play out. Um, uh, that's why you know ghosts or UFOs are sometimes you'll have different stories. It's just some people are able to see it, some people aren't. Um, there's the old myth that um, when the ships from Europe first came to the United States, that um, or to America, excuse me, that the Native Americans here couldn't see them because they couldn't fathom the possibility. And while that's a myth. I do believe in that concept, that there are some things we cannot see because we simply cannot fathom the possibility. There are things that happen, things that are there that are beyond our understanding and beyond our comprehension. We have a very, very, very limited, limited use of our senses and, and a very limited understanding of dimensions. Um, but I think artists are more open to it because we do things like we, we take a plain piece of paper and we try to give the illusion of depth. We try and create dimensions on something that is by its very nature um, flat. It's, it's, it's almost one-dimensional. And yet we create that illusion of depth. So I think we tend to be more open to that idea of uh, being able to per perceive other things. I, I love that idea. I love the idea that, you know, you can't, you can't perceive what you can't imagine. You know, it's if you if your brain is sort of shut off to the idea 
that you that this even would be a possibility, then it would be harder for you to perceive something like that then because uh, your brain would tell you, you know, this isn't it's not it's not real. You're not seeing something. And so you kind of do have to have a certain degree of openness in order to perceive something that's so outside of, of the normal everyday human experience. And, and yet. It's so interesting to me because that, that at its core is sort of the concept of, of faith. Um, and so it sort of surprises me when people who are, you know, very religious can't wrap their heads around the idea of there being, you know, aliens or of there being ghosts or whatever the situation because, you know, that's at the core of their idea is to, you know, to believe something even though it's out of the realm of believability. Um, yeah. So I, I, I sort of always have to wrap my head around it, but I, and, and I think it does, apply in a greater context to society, this idea that, well, if we're capable of imagining a world that is going to be this way or that way, how are we ever going to pull it off? The first step is to imagine the possibility, um, no matter what it is, to accept, to open ourselves to the idea of it is possible. And that's with everything. Look, I, I mean, someone had to say, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, the Wright brothers had to say, I believe man can fly. And then they made it happen. Um, it took hundreds of years for it to happen, but it happened. You know, someone has to say, I believe we can land on the moon. Someone has to say, I believe we can travel between dimensions. Someone has to first take that statement and go out of their way and say, I believe it. And then others have to get on board and then make it happen. But it starts with that first opening yourself up to the possibility. That's awesome. So uh, I wanted to ask if you have any sort of advice or um, anything that you'd like to, from your experience as a as an artist, uh, as a, a master maze artist, as a um, uh, we were talking earlier about all of your different accomplishments doing the live drawings of the symphony. Um, you've had so many such a great uh, career. I wanted to know if you had any sort of advice for people who also wanted to be artists as well. Yeah, I, I mean, a couple of pieces of advice. The first is practice. Lots and lots of practice. Um, I always tell my students, practice makes pretty good. Not perfect. Practice makes pretty good. Nobody's perfect. I'm still learning. I don't have to be the best in the world. I just have to be the best me that I can be. And that's all anyone expects of, of another person is to be the best of them that they can be. Um, every person should be the best them, the best personal individual, we, me, us. Be the best you can be, whatever it is, um, and focus on that and practice at it and get better at it. Um, the other thing is, you know, know when you're ready. Uh, you know, you've got to know when you've reached a level which say, okay, I'm ready to do this now. I'm ready to take that leap. Um, the other thing I think is very important is practice being lucky. And the reason I say that is all the skill in the world, all the talent in the world is actually sadly worthless if no one ever discovers you, if no one ever sees you. So you have to be ready when that moment comes, when that lucky moment, that knock at the door comes, that right person in the audience, whatever it is, that exact moment, you have to be ready for it. So you have to practice being lucky so that when opportunity knocks, you're there to answer the door. Mm. That's awesome. Um, 
Well, uh, we're kind of coming up on the end of our time, but uh, I wanted to uh, ask it, where can we find more of your work and uh, what what more do you have coming down the pipeline? Great. Well, a couple ways you can support my work. You can visit me online at mazetoons.com, M-A-Z-E-T-O-O-N-S.com. Um, you can subscribe to my feature Maze Tunes at gocomics.com. Um, write your local newspaper. Ask them to carry Maze Tunes from Creator Syndicate. And my books are available in bookstores and online everywhere. Um, they are Amazing Animals, 50 Mazes for Kids, and Myths for Mon- Myths Monsters, 50 Mazes for Kids, and there's lots of other ones out there too. Um, next projects, um, well, I'm hoping to break my world record. I set the world record largest hand-drawn maze, which was four feet by 36 feet long. So I want to break that record. Uh, and then I have some new books coming out. Um, the next book is going to be Mazozoic which is 50 dinosaur mazes, which has been a very intense amount of research for me. I'm working on that, finishing that one up now. And then the next one will be 50 mazes of 50 states, which will be mazes all about America, uh, every state will be featured. So uh, a lot of exciting projects happening. That's awesome, Joe. Thank you so much for um, coming back on and and, um, being so patient with me while I figure this out and making the time for uh, to, to talk and come on and uh, I look forward to um, I look forward to being challenged by more of these mazes <laughs> um, and uh, I look forward to seeing you break this this record that's awesome yeah great and, and solve those mazes because uh, you never know they, it may be the key that unlocks another dimension <laughs> oh my goodness oh my goodness <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much, Joe, for your time, and uh, uh, have a good day. Thanks very much. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks for having me. Bye.